Kaylee Pruittham of People Power Indie Folk Group, KPH, and the Canary Collective. I started a podcast during a global public health epidemic. In February 2020, I released an album called The Canary Collective, Volume 1, full of songs about healing and building the world we want. So this podcast is going to start out by tracing the steps of these songs and delving deeper through conversation, exploring the people and topics who inspired me to write these tunes. So welcome, join us, and let's sing our way out of this mine together. Out. Okay. Hi. <laughs> um, hey. Hi. We are joined by Chiara, the lovely Chiara D'Angelo. Do you say D'Angelo or D'Angelo? Um, D'Angelo. D'Angelo. Um, and this is, this was technically meant to be the first podcast episode for the Canary Collective podcast. And I like to say that this is a podcast for the orca whale pods, especially because we are wanting to talk about the essential ecosystem restoration that must happen with our dams needing to be removed in rivers all around the world, but especially Washington State is where Kiara has been an amazing activist on so many fronts for years and years. We've known each other um, through activism for many years. And um, Kiara has uh, chained herself, if, if that's okay to talk about. <laughs> she is very committed activist, chained herself to an Arctic oil drilling rig a couple of years ago. Um, in the the sound and are the in the salish sea to protect the salish sea also known as um, the colonized puget sound and uh, she has been working on dam dam removal activism for many many years and uh, the purpose of this canary collective podcast in general is i want to um kind of talk about the messages behind the songs um, where I released an album of songs and, and poetry and highlighting of other canaries with chronic illness. And I don't want it to just be about the songs. I want us to talk about the call to action that um, we all, I want people to get out of the album, the call to action and healing our bodies and healing our earth, healing the ecosystems within our bodies that are really feeling the effects of what we've been doing to the earth. And um, I also like to give a little bit of hope. So I, I know that you are part of the solution. So I'm so glad to get to talk to you because you give me hope. <laughs> so um, Kiara, how are you doing? I, I was hoping that you could share a little bit about your health journey as well as the activism, as we both um, have some things in common with that. So um, yeah. how are you doing I'd during the pandemic? Um, really amazing during this pandemic in a way because I have work that I'm able to do functionally that's meaningful and I have a home, which has been a, a struggle through housing insecurity, not for lack of income, but for lack of accessible space um, that is for rent and is um, 
meets my needs. So I, um, I guess I'll start by talking a little bit about my childhood and my journey um, with a mother with chronic illness. Um, when I was born, my mom uh, faced doctor malpractice. So the doctors um, didn't take care of her properly. And from that experience, she developed a chronic illness. Um, some people call it lupus. Um, she's been dual diagnosed with lupus and fibromyalgia, um, which are two autoimmune chronic illnesses that she's suffered from for, I'm 25 now, so for 25 years. And we moved a lot when I was a kid because of that. So we moved, I want to say maybe 11 times when I was young that we transitioned homes. And so that was partly due to, you know, the housing crisis that's been here. Um, but it's getting a lot worse and more noticeable. But I think there has been a systemic housing crisis for low-income people for a long time. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my health journey leading up. I, I have celiac disease, um, which is an illness that is triggered by the consumption of um, an allergy, an autoimmune allergy to, to gluten, which is uh, wheat and rye and barley, um, things that I can't eat or be exposed to and didn't know for a long time. So I have a lot of internal health issues related to that. Um, and then I also have um, a couple other um, illnesses I don't necessarily want to talk about, but uh, uh, layering health issues. Um, and one of those is um, suffering from a traumatic brain injury. I was in a car accident three years ago and um, suffered from a, a traumatic brain injury that uh, really debilitated me for about six months. And I am still in recovery from um, which um, is a journey and a process. Um, so that's a little bit about my health journey and, and how it relates to environmental justice. And um, my passion is from these illnesses, I have um, sensitivity to chemicals, um, to neurotoxins, to uh, things that I, in a way, I feel like most people don't even necessarily notice always. Um, but if I drive through SeaTac or I drive through certain communities, you know, I, I can smell um, toxins in the air and uh, people raise children and live at those, in those communities and they, and they have higher rates of cancers, they have higher rates of asthma, they have higher rates of autoimmune illnesses. And um, when you're living in it, it's like the air you breathe, the water you, you, you know, if you're a fish, it's the water you live in, right? And so people don't even know that they're breathing in these a lot of times people don't know people do know and people are organizing and fighting back but um a lot of humans don't know the chronic uh, pollution that they're living in and the way that it is impacting them and so i'm a big advocate for environmental justice um and in that same lens i'm also a really big advocate for uh justice for for animals that are always on the front lines of the environment, right? They don't have homes to go into to close the windows during wildfires. That's chronic, long-term systemic issues on um, on our on our wildlife, and um, and that is the same thing for sewage spills, right? I I went for a swim about six days after a sewage spill and got a full body rash, and um, saw a family of river otters, and those river otters didn't have the choice of leaving their home during that time. And so I think as humans 
respecting that the, the natural environment as a home it's somebody's home and how do we relate um to the natural world knowing that uh animals live there and that's where they call home so yeah there's a lot there i you know i i dive right in but um but yeah those are just some things that are that come up off the off the top of my head and uh so that's kind of my health journey. Um, my mom and I haven't been able to see each other since the pandemic started, um, which has yeah. been really difficult, but um, I am not choosing to not grocery shop and do these certain things that um, she just can't have exposure. So um, mm -hmm. that's been difficult um, for our family, um, but it's part of what we have to do right now to survive, so. Yeah, do you see connection to between the pandemic and what's been happening with our Earth's ecosystems? I see kind of a few layers of connection. Um, the first is I really believe to get out of this pandemic, people need to start believing experts. There is a field of experts who understand contagion, who understand coronavirus, and we need to attune our decision making to their lenses in order to get through this. And I think the same thing's true with our environmental crisis. Um, I think that in that same light, it's not always scientists that are the only experts. Indigenous people have layers of understanding and wisdom. Um, cult there's cultural survival through this pandemic, as well as cultural lenses to apply to getting through the climate crisis. So I think when I talk about experts, I'm not just talking about scientists, but also, well, I guess, you know, cultural scientists, traditional scientists, and the way that those many lenses are important for overcoming both this crisis of coronavirus and the crisis of the climate crisis, which we're in. Um, I think the other layer is kind of this, um, this the way that nature is responding to the stillness of this time and how we can integrate some of the changes that we've been forced to make from coronavirus back into um into our normal reality um so there's some inspiring things that we know are possible now like remote working obviously it's not working for everyone but where it does work it's exciting for reducing traffic and um also just i'm i'm super curious about uh a lot of other kind of silver linings that could potentially come from this yeah it's um that's very well said that we need to be listening to the experts the scientists of all kinds and indigenous experts um who for many thousands of years there have been people who are have been living on this planet who know a thing or two about you know traditionally how to live in accordance with the earth's ecosystems and um so i'm really glad that you brought that up uh that the definition of expert is not just um a western scientist uh model um so yeah i i really feel akin to you with um, your sensitivity to gluten and um, neurotoxins. Uh, neurotoxins are found in things like even herbal essences, shampoo. <laughs> we have used a lot of petroleum 
products, petrochemicals, and our livers are having a hard time processing those. And um, I have heard from several of my functional medicine doctors and uh, alternative health practitioners that there are theories that a lot of potential roots of gluten intolerance and celiac disease, which are very controversial. A lot of people say like, oh, you're not allergic to bread. People have been eating bread for thousands of years, like no problem. And all of a sudden it's a fad. Um, but we are using an unprecedented level of roundup, um, biochemical weaponized anti-bug spray in our crops and in our agricultural system, the, the wheat, there's so much glyphosate, AKA Roundup, in our agricultural system. We have stripped our soil of its nutrients that it used to have um, through tilling and through putting antibiotics into the soil, creating superbugs. So um, there are other theories about some of the roots of chronic illness and digestive issues. So many people getting diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome or food sensitivities. Um, and it's no surprise to a lot of the experts, such as Paul Stamets, who, uh, Paul Stamets, the, the mushroom man, <laughs> um, who in his documentary, Fantastic Fungi, talks about the pandemics. He released this film and made it several you know, years ago, but he was predicting pandemics um, due to our agricultural system and the use of chemicals creating superbugs and affecting our immune systems as well. So um, do you, yeah, I'm curious, like what are the, some of the first symptoms that you started feeling and did you feel like, did you get a diagnosis of celiac disease right away? What was that like? Yeah, um, it's a great question because, you know, I know a lot of people suffer and don't have answers for their question about their health. Um, you know, for, for me specifically, it was uh, inflammation and inability to function in sports when I was in high school. So difficulty running or I guess maintaining it, right? Because I was the fastest, whatever, sprinter, but a difficulty maintaining stamina. Um, and then, yeah, difficulty with absorption and, and really taking in nutrients. Um, and I think uh, those were just a few of the symptoms, but I think a lot of people with chronic illness, it starts out, and you know, I love your story as well, but I think it starts off as fatigue sometimes. It can start off as tiredness. Um, and also I think it, when, when it comes to gut health, it can show up as depression. It can show up as uh, will to, a lack of will to, and I am not somebody with mental depression. I'm not somebody with emotional depression, but I get physically depressed. And that is from my, my, my body systems, just like our ecosystems, my body systems not needing support that, you know, I haven't historically in high school, didn't have lenses for, right? I just knew when you were sick, you went to the doctor, but after watching 25 years of my mother, right? My closest 
figure going to the doctor and getting no answers and no no, nothing like no no support years and years and years of experts with nothing significant to give to her and it just gets to a point where you have to you have to be your own investigator in order to get well you have to um, and so for me it's meant slow cooking it's meant exercising every day in ways that aren't stressful it's meant monitoring my stress more and understanding my stress um, and then in terms of my brain health it's meant an, an you know, immense amount of um, work on herbal medicines and mushroom medicines, including mostly lion's mane was my biggest ally in, mm. in um, neural health. But wow. it's, it's really about becoming that investigator and figuring out and really listening to your body. And I think, and, and you know, tell me what you think. And, you know, I'm interested to talk about this, but what I think is that it's, um, it's, it's ingrained in us in a way not to listen to our bodies and to, and to sit in the, the moment we're told to sit in the chair for eight hours a day and you know, you're wrong when you're squirming, that's telling you to stop listening to your body. Cause when you're a kid, all you want to do is move. Yeah. All you want to do is play. And so I, I think you at a young age, we get conditioned that good is not listening to your body and pushing through, mm-hmm. which can be helpful because there are a lot of human things that, like exercise is a great example. It doesn't always feel good when you're doing it, but afterwards, you know, the benefits are so obvious. Challenge is helpful, but not numbing. Numbing isn't helpful. Yeah. I, I said, especially you are moving your body because uh, the first time we met actually was in Bellingham and you were dancing at a concert and just you caught my eye because you were just so in touch with your body and just like I could tell that you could not help but move. <laughs> so I mentioned that I, I let that school system pound into me, like not listening to my body. And I was, I was sick from a young age. So I, I kind of developed a habit of like escaping, you know, spacing out because my body experience was so painful. Um, and when oh, I would have doctor's offices as a kid they just would you know kick the can on the road so um yeah i i do want to say that um my experience was similar in, in having to be uh, become my own advocate because the way that the Western healthcare system usually funnels people through is saying, I mean, especially when you're, you get diagnosed with something that they call an autoimmune disorder, whether that's lupus or fibromyalgia, which I at first was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Um, they, you know, they try to give you immunosuppressants because the Western understanding of autoimmune is we have, we know that there's inflammation in your body. Um, what is inflammation? But you, you know, if you get a cut, then it gets really red and there's swelling because these like immune cells go to rush to like support it, you know, and, and mend it. And there's like a lot of activity. Um, like if you're in a, a, a mall and someone faints to the ground, there's going to be a whole crowd that comes up to that site. You know, people who are giving, taking their pulse, people who are getting the stretcher. Um, And so that's kind of what happens with our body. But when we say, hey, there's inflammation here, they say, well, we're looking for the fainting person. We're looking for the, the virus or the cut or whatever that might be the cause 
of that place where you're having inflammation and we tested you for these five strains of infections or toxins and we didn't find what we thought we'd find. So the only reason that we can possibly imagine that your, your body has inflammation is that it is malfunctioning and it is overreacting and it's attacking itself for no reason. So our answer is to numb your immune, your immune system to like put to sleep your defense cells with steroids, which sometimes that's what you have to do to like quell the fire, you know? But, um, I, I, when they were telling me that, that that was the only answer, uh, I, I did not, that didn't sit right with me. It didn't feel right. Um, and we, you know, the first kind of symptoms that I started to get when my health really crashed when I was 25, five years ago, um, one of the main things was my, my neck. Um, I got a bug bite on the back of my neck and it swelled to the size of like a ping pong ball. And my lymph nodes were rock hard, swollen. I had fever. I was having night sweats and I started, my tongue was coated orange. <laughs> and so some really clear signs of infection or, you know, inf inflammation and kind of an immune response were happening. Um, but when I went into the doctor, they, they, you know, tested me for any kind of infection that I could have got from the bug bite. And they said there was, there was nothing. So the only answer is to take Tylenol and go home. And I, I started developing this like excruciating pain down my neck that was like a hot iron rod up through here, like stiff, painful, feverish. And it's like when, you know, when you have like a sore neck, someone like massages it and you're like, oh, it feels so much better. It was not that. It was like if someone touched it, it would feel like there were like knives under my skin and they were like touching it and it was getting worse, like nerve pain. Um, just very wow. clear like, nerve inflammation and like pretty much ex if you Google the symptoms of meningitis, like viral meningitis, like that's exactly what I had, like an infection. Major and, physical trauma. Yeah. Yeah. But they, they didn't see it that way. They kept saying like, hold your pencil differently. Try rolling up a towel and putting it under your neck when you sleep so that you're not sleeping on your neck wrong. And they were just trying to make me believe that it was musculoskeletal. And they were like, here, let's do like, let's give you a brace to like correct your body. And that's when I, when I wrote my song, Damn Damn about river dams, this is the connection that I wanted to make with you. Cause I wrote this song because this, connection between what's happening with the rivers and the orca and orca populations and the dams is related to what's happening with my body i felt um because as soon as i finally after two years finally reached a lyme literate doctor who gave me medicine that was addressing infections that would cause inflammation there within two days the pain was gone and it was like it was like a dam had broken free and something that was built up was finally allowed to flow again. 
And I felt so damn validated because I had been suspecting that this was an infection, that if I took medicine to help the infection, then that pain would go away, not forcing my body to like, you know, blaming it on the individual. My body was trying to protect me the whole damn time. Like my body was really trying to keep that infection there um, and not spreading. So anyway, I wrote the song because you can maybe explain why dams are harming our orca whale populations and our salmon populations and the otter populations and thus human populations. Yeah, I think the first thing to name is that in the 60 million years that salmon evolved, the water temperatures from climate change alone are projected to be warmer than they ever were in that time in the next 200 years. If we don't change, right? Like if we were just to keep going. Yeah. Um, even at some rate, right? Like if we don't radically change um, and, and stop warming. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of factors with dams and I work for the Endangered Species Coalition as their Pacific Coast Organizer. So I worked on um, their coastal issues, mostly around orca recovery. And orca whales have three major threats, food availability being the first. So they're starving. And when orca whales starve, the second issue becomes prevalent, which is toxins in the environment. And when they starve, they burn their fat, and then the fat is where all those chemicals are stored, all the chemicals that, um, be because they are at the top of the food chain, right, they get all the chemicals, they, it's called um, bioaccumulation. So um, they're a bioaccumulative species, and they have uh, compacted chemicals in their fat that burn when they, need the, when they need that fat, when they're starving. And a lot of times when they need that fat is when they're gestating, so when they're creating their offspring and when they're breastfeeding. And so they're not surviving. Um, there are uh, just over 70 orcas, southern resident orcas, which is three different pods, K, K, um, JK and L pods. And those three pods, um, those, are the, those are the two main factors. The third factor is underwater noise. So that they are um, basically, I mean, in, in, in kind of simple terms, echolocating hunters. So they they kind of feed off of each other and to identify where the prey is. And they uh, historically ate really big Chinook salmon. So the reason the Columbia matters, even though these orcas live here, is because as the orcas make their journey out of the Salish Sea every year, mostly K&L pods do this, they journey back with the Columbia River. And this historically used to be about 50% of their diet actually came from those Columbia River Chinook salmon runs. Wow. And about, uh, you know, so those Chinook salmon used to be mighty, mighty fish. And now they have to eat a lot smaller fish and there's less of them. And so there's just this really extreme condition um, that happens. And those, those Chinook actually go up to Southeast Alaska uh, where they rear for three to five years, sometimes longer historically, as long as eight years, they would spend up there before coming home and making their journey back to the upper Columbia back to um, the Snake River um, and back to up, up near Shoshone Bannock territory in, um, in Idaho. And um, yeah, they are incredible creatures. Um, Chinook salmon are, um, and 
they're resilient, but they're not resilient to a few things. Um, and those few things are things that dams perpetuate. So they need to spawn. And so dams impact fish passage. There's over 200 dams on the Columbia River system um, that are blocking fish passage. Um, they need cool waters and dams create reservoirs that then heat up in the sunlight, um, kind of like reflective pools, if you will. And um, they just create really warm pools. Um, they uh, don't thrive in warm waters. And, and the third thing is actually, well, there's, there's a few more with dams, but the one that I'm really interested in too is predation. So as the smolts sit there, um, oh, I guess I'll add two more. So the, the smolts sit there, they, the, the predator species um, and oftentimes invasive species will will just basically live in that lake that's at the base of the dam or at the um, uh, the upstream of the dam and uh, kind of just feed off of this molt. Um, and then the, the next one is that there used to be um, a species called lamprey, which are these little eels that are swim a little bit slower than the smolt. And so predator species used to go after the lamprey instead of going after the the fish and so that would it was kind of a deterrent from predation on the fish now the fish ladders aren't made for lamprey so lamprey can't can't return and um, it's completely devastated the lamprey populations of the columbia river the dam system has and then the last one is flow stream flow and so the Columbia River is such a big river but it used to take a fish only two weeks to go from the very reaches of the upper Columbia all the way down uh, to the to the mouth and sometimes even even faster than that depending on um, you know just the season and and how um, how how strong the river pole was but now with all these dams that pole is slower which means warmer waters again um, and then also it's just a lot more risk factor right you're talking about potentially doubling the amount of time uh, sometimes quadrupling the amount of time in the river as a smolt and it's not a good it's not a good process so there's a ton of factors there's a ton of dams and um you know i i am not really in a position to say you know that these dams that uh the lower snake river dams which are the dams that my organization was advocating for removal and a lot of organizations and a lot of activists really want to see come down. And the reason they want to see them come designed to only be up for 50 years. The second reason that they want to see these dams come down is because it would help basically reach recovery goals. So it would bring the smolt to adult ratio, which is the ratio that smolt go down and come back at, which is currently at 1%. So 100 smolt leave, one will come back as an adult. It would bring that up to about 4 to 5%, which is survival, which is recovery levels. And that's awesome. And then the, the other thing is um, that uh, there's no new authority needed to, to, to breach them. So technically, uh, you know, experts say the Army Corps could make a decision, um, though because it's become political, uh, it, it likely won't happen that way. So a lot there, but, you know, there's been other calls, you know, the Upper Columbia tribes face serious ramifications from the dams up there. Um, I, I'm currently the campaign director for uh, a woman who's from the Colville tribes. Her name's Glenda Breiler. She's running in Olympia, Washington. And her, her dam system up there is, um, has even less fish passage. And it's a really intense story of, um, of yeah, just a very, uh, 
intensely constructed dam projects that were done without the consent of the, of the upper Columbia tribal communities. And um, uh, so there's, there's, so there's that story. And then there's also the two, the lower Columbia dams, which the Yakima nation has recently put out a declaration for removal of. So a lot of dam projects. Um, I, I've also, I, I traveled to DC with my organization and one of the tribal leaders that came out uh, to talk to to leaders in DC was um, telling me about the Hell's Canyon complex um, in Choban territory and the way that those dams have impacted his people. Um, and he went out last year, um, last summer, and there was no salmon in the river at all. And just his devastation, uh, kind of to see that. Um, and, you know, so, so that's kind of the story of dams and the way that, yeah, just like your, just like your, your body's reaction, uh, dams are, are, cause huge shifts and the entire ecosystem has to respond to those shifts and it's not sustainable. So it, it literally cannot continue this way. Um, and yet Eastern Washington communities have a really strong attachment to these, to this infrastructure. Um, and also our, our entire society is built around it. And so there's a lot that needs to happen before we're ready to, to figure out, you know, how to do this in a way that um, keeps communities whole. Wow. You know so much about it. I'm not surprised, uh, but just you have so much knowledge. You're one of those people who have the intellectual, uh, high grade <laughs> intellect for these, these facts and figures that we need to be arguing as well as the charisma and like spiritually connected to this story. So uh, you are a threat to be reckoned with for <laughs> any opposition to this. So I'm so glad that you're working on what you're working on. Um, and I was reading an article in wildsalmon.org or something from like years ago that was saying that a lot of, like a myth that about the dam removal proposed projects um, include like that it would be so costly to taxpayers to do this, but they were arguing that it's actually costing taxpayers like $8 billion that we've already spent on salmon restoration projects, which aren't even working. And our industries, so many industries that rely on the orca whales to be healthy, the fish to be healthy, all of us to be healthy uh, are completely, if those are gone, then that'll be a huge hit to all the industries. So can you argue that um like even economically this would be a good idea for everybody <laughs> yeah specifically lower snake river dam breaching which is four dams that were built on palouse and umatilla territories specifically those four dams breaching them tomorrow would be fiscally extraordinarily fiscally and socially responsible um so that is something we could do tomorrow and we have the framework for how to keep communities whole. So that project is um, is being blocked by the Trump administration, of course, right now. Um, their Army Corps of Engineers just put out a joke of a proposal um, and it was an environmental impact statement that basically was completely centered around the infrastructure and did not address environmental concerns at all. Uh, it was a pretty weak and watered-down document 
um, that I personally was fairly offended by um, that will inform the decisions about Lower Snake River Dam breaching. So pretty horrified by that and, um, you know, I don't think a Biden administration is going to do much better. So just have to figure out, you know, what is going to move the needle on that issue, but it's definitely fiscally responsible to breach those dams. If, if we could imagine a world in which the Bi a, a Biden administration is persuaded and local committees who are at the decision-making level, the, the state legislature in Washington state, what do you think would persuade them? Because we do have some happy, positive success stories like the removal of the dam at the Elwha River. There's a documentary about that called Return of the River that I just watched. Um, I'm sure it wasn't a perfect struggle or success, but um, the, the Elwha indigenous communities and activists were able to persuade a decision-making committee that had formerly been so opposed to the dam removal and then they actually reached consensus apparently um, to remove the dam. And in the documentary, they interview people who were on the committee who described what it felt like to be like, wow, I, they made some really good points and my mind was changed. What do you think are the points that would persuade someone who is against the dam removal because they're afraid of these, this electricity and energy switch, the companies being afraid of losing money. Um, and like, what would we have instead? Like, how would we supply power instead? Yeah, I mean, for the lower Snake River dams, it, it, what's really going to need to happen is for folks to take a look at the power grid because, or a map of the power grid, because in the times that these systems are operating and functioning, we are in what we call oversupply by far. We have about, we're producing about uh, double, maybe sometimes a little less than that electricity than we need. And wow. then in the times that these dams don't produce any power, when we need the electricity, you know, we're, we're not producing enough. And so, but they don't produce hardly anything, right? So they're producing maybe uh, one, to 5% of what they, what they could be producing. And so for me, that is important because the idea that these are hydroelectricity dams is a fallacy in the sense that they're not positively contributing to the hydroelectricity system. And so what I would like to see is uh, an acknowledgement of that. And I think that conversation is, is really the game changer um, for people thinking, okay, well, is this a debate between climate action and ecosystem restoration? Well, one, it's both. We have to mitigate climate change by taking these dams out, right? Because not only, um, you know, are, you know, are we facing climate impacts, uh, but these dams exacerbate those climate impacts, and we have to, we have to take action to ensure survival of, of critical species, which should be the goal, the whole goal of stopping climate change. So, um, that I think would is is the main thing is I wish I could show you a graph right now of that um, that power supply map, but it's just very compelling. So who does like why have the dams? Um, who gosh, wants a lot of reasons? Mainly grain industry because it's a shipping it's a shipping uh, canal. So for all that bread we can't eat. 
I know, right? Each ship is subsidized by about, um, I think it was $20,000 in subsidies for the transit, uh, if, you, if you count all the money going into the dams. And so basically it's a subsidized transit structure, infrastructure, um, and a lot of fossil fuels are being shipped by rail. And so it's kind of this, in my belief, we need to make sure that we can get our food on our, on our rail systems and increase um, our rail capacity. Um, and then, yeah, I restore free flowing river, which um, is the treaty right of the Nez Perce community. Um, so, you know, it's not a conversation of if, it's a conversation of when, and the sooner we do it, the sooner we fulfill our treaty obligations, which yeah. is the law. So it's not a question of if, but when, and we need to uh, fulfill those obligations because that's our responsibility. Yeah. Um... <laughs> yeah, I know that there's so many fossil fuel projects like at March's Point in Anacortes area uh, in Washington State. So many fossil fuel projects that are being proposed are already happening on native land and is totally against treaty rights, um, tr treaty law. And so I, how can how can people support organizations that are are taking leadership from First Nations communities specifically in this fight? Yeah, there's a couple First Nations-led organizations. I'm happy to share the links with you. Um, up in Canada, they're doing work to resist fossil fuel infrastructure that's impacting the Salish Sea, which is the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Um, that are very impressive projects. Um, there is uh, an organization working on uh, salmon defense locally called Salmon Defense. Um, that's a Native American-led organization doing work to protect um, protect local salmon runs and um, remove culverts and and do really important salmon restoration work locally. Um, but yeah, I can share some links of Native organizations and then. Um, you know, I'm not a perfect ally, and it's uh, it's definitely a journey in terms of knowing how to show up um, in a good way and um, something that I'm always working towards. Um, but I think if you know, if you want to support organizations that are doing the good work, um, supporting uh, non-native non organizations is, is awesome. And, and if you want to support organizations doing the good work for Indigenous folks, Indigenous organizations are and uh, always in need of funding, especially at this time with COVID. So highly recommend uh, supporting those Indigenous-led organizations doing that awesome work. Yeah, um, I am on disability and I have a really limited income right now, but for the last five years, I, I um, have been sending donations to First Nations um, organizations and, and people because I yeah, it's just incredibly important and essential. And absolutely, if anyone is able to just send money, I think, is that a a good move for now to ask of people? Or is there anything um, additional that people can help with with the campaign you're working on? Um, yeah, uh, I... I would say contact the Army Corps of Engineers. I'll see, I think the EIN comment period is closed, but if not, it'd be awesome if folks could leave a comment in support of dam breaching. Where? 
uh, I'll, I'll submit a link, but basically it's the Army Corps. I'll have to give you a couple links to, to share, but it's the Army Corps um, EIS environmental impact statement process. It's a formal comment process. So different organizations have pretty awesome links. I don't have one available, but I can, I can send you the link. Okay. Yeah, um, we can put that on this when we post it. Um, thank you so much for this information. Oh, excuse me. Bless you. <laughs> um, I, I want to be aware of our energy levels, and I just appreciate you spending your, your energy on this conversation. Um, I feel the orca whales distress, the, the toxins in their bodies, what's happening with their bodies, I'm learning is happening uh, in a similar way in my own. And um, there are going to be so many doctors that are trying to convince us that we're imagining things and that it's, it's fine and that it's not toxins. Um, there's no possible way that all the chemicals could be affecting us. <laughs> um, they're safe. <laughs> um, and the fact that we've had so many miscarriages and, and dying orca babies. Um, we need to do something, uh, this year. <laughs> we do not right have now. Yeah. right now. We do not have time. So if we were, uh, I like to, uh, in this so far, I've had one other podcast interview. Um, but I want to make a habit of at the close of every conversation, we pretend we have lived, we are going zooming into the future. And you and I are having an activist reunion in the year 2040. And we're talking about the last 20 years. And let's pretend these that some, the miracles happened, and we won. Uh, in the dam removal projects, and we have successfully transitioned with the the railway systems so much more robust, and we have curbed the terrible fossil fuel projects. And um, let's are you willing to pretend with me for thirty seconds to a minute and just like act as if we're in the future and, and talk about like how wild it was uh, and what things we did to make it happen. <laughs> you want, you want to try? Okay. Sounds awesome. All right. Oh, so good to see you again, Kiara. Wow. Here, let me go put a jacket on time machine. Oh yeah. I should, uh, I should put my robot hat on. Well, <laughs> Pretend, pretend this is a, oh. I'll add some wrinkles. <laughs> no, we aren't going to have any, any of this. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> Kaylee, uh, how are you? Oh my gosh, good to see you. So good to see you. What a wild, wild couple of decades it's been. Do you remember when I interviewed for you for that first Canary Collective podcast and I was oh my gosh struggling with the internet like we had like internet connection issues and like it was the beginning of like video chats before holograms and stuff <laughs> oh how naive we were <laughs> I'm so glad that you continued to fight for the dam removal and the lower snake rivers oh my gosh 
can you believe that we were thinking maybe that wouldn't happen and how scared we were? Yeah, it's pretty incredible how everyone pulled together. Yeah. Against the odds. It's pretty incredible. Especially just, I remember, you know, just the, the political times at that time were so scary and um, it just felt like, you know, nothing we could do could, could change the conversation, but it's just so incredible, you know, with that, with that tribal leadership and with um, just the collective will, it's just amazing how, um, how that came to be. Yeah, it was, it was really amazing how people, even though the pandemic with terrible timing kind of prevented us from like being in person, like how that kind of led to the boom of virtual video lobbying where people still came together despite all the challenges. And we had those like video flash mobs where we were tweeting to the army corps. And I, I'm so glad that those, that group within the army corps like felt something and felt empathy and th that, that connection across that divide was really essential. Uh, do you remember how hard it was to like ride a train? There was only like one train ticket you could get from California to Washington. <laughs> it would take so long. Oh, I know. Yeah. I'm so thankful for our, our um, just our transit system. It's so, it's such a relief not to have to deal with traffic anymore. <sighs> yeah done with that <laughs> oh well thank you so much we we have been to the future and let's let's do it <laughs> let's keep on going the animals and the otters and the orcas are relying on us to listen to them their cries absolutely <sighs> thank you kaylee for everything and for this opportunity to share together and visit about these important issues. It means a lot. Thank you. I have always admired you so much. And of course, forgot to talk about the fact that you chained yourself to an oil ship like a mermaid for how many hours? I was three days. You are a badass and people should just look up that story and just have yet another fact in the pile of how amazing you are. So thank you for the- Yeah, that was quite the experience. It was actually um, an Arctic cleanup rig, but it was an essential component of a massive drilling operation in the Arctic. So they had a plan to drill with a 75% chance of major oil spill in the Anupiaq um, areas. 75% chance? Yeah, so it's- And it was canceled? And that was what the government, it got canceled eventually, yeah. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, so anyways, it was definitely one of those, there's a whole nother conversation there, but I have to go for a call with my boss, but I'm so grateful. So thank you, Kaylee. Oh, yes, everybody um, contribute to the campaign with Glenda. Oh. Gl Glenda. Glenda. I'll send the link for that too. Okay. Thanks, Kiara.